Good day, friends, and thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Going to continue along today in the Gospel of John, but we're going to switch gears here. We have finished up with the interview that uh, was recorded that Jesus did with Nicodemus, and now we're going to go into, as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, a back-to-back conversation that Jesus has with a woman at the well. And the contrast between these two is really striking, showing how the religious leader, his receptivity to the gospel message of Jesus, and how this woman at the well is a social outcast, and how she received the gospel message of Jesus. And I also want to point out in the podcast is how when Jesus went into Samaria, and when he particularly goes to a woman in Samaria, how he's breaking down the prejudicial racial issues of his day, even by doing it. And also the other thing that he's doing in dealing with this woman at at the well, the Samaritan woman, he's also taking another step forward in the liberation of women who were, their treatment at that time in history was a heck of a lot different than it is today. And then towards the end of the podcast, what I'd like to do is, as I try to do with others, is relate what we're talking about here to what's going on in our world now, because if there's one thing that we really learn from history is that it repeats itself over and over again. Why is that? Well, because the enemy will always do the same things over and over. He's incapable of doing anything different. But if we can, if we can study and learn from it, then we can know exactly where we're at now and where he is going with his plan. And that helps us to realize what's going on and how to react to it, hopefully. But anyway, let's look at this story of the woman at the well. It con- as I said, it concludes the back-to-back interviews in the Gospel of John. And they're designed to display the contrasting characters involved in how the, the Gospel is inclusive and cuts across all cultural divides. The same good news message is given to all, but it's remarkable how it's received differently, especially among the self-righteous religious person and the everyday folk who struggle in society. With the hierarchical Sanhedrin ruler alongside the despised Samaritan woman of ill repute, the irony couldn't be more obvious. And it's important to the apostle to try to convey how the religious often, and when I say religious, I think you know what I mean at the, from the other podcast, they'll reject the simple gospel message that the supposed rebels of society gladly receive. And the scripture bears this out. Years later, here's what Paul writes to the church at Corinthians. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, and not many of you were influential. And certainly not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Hasn't that proven to be the case throughout history? And that's what this story with the woman at the well displays. The gospel message of Christ leaves us all at the same level before God. We're all sinners in need of a savior. Yet the... Often the rich, the powerful, and the highly educated find it so difficult to accept that and respond. Uh, Jesus one time said, how hardly shall the rich get into the kingdom of God. He didn't say it was impossible. He said it would be rare. The, the acknowledgement by those people 
that they would actually come up short before God despite their success before others, it, it stands in their way of any real repentance. Self-righteousness never serves any of us well. Now, as this story goes, Nicodemus had nothing in common with the Samaritan woman. He was considered the masculine leader. She was the female lesser. He's the righteous ruler. She's the promiscuous sinner. He has the support of the people. She is society's outcast. Logically, it makes perfect sense that he's going to hold a prominent place in the kingdom of God, and she's going to be relegated to the outside looking in. But by the scriptures we just read, that's not the case. And of course, Jesus sees them both the same. And he certainly sees things sometimes differently from the way things, way man sees things. I always think of the story that's in the Old Testament. He goes out to anoint a new king to replace Saul, and he goes to the house of David's family, and the father has all the sons there. Of course, David's not there. He's, he's not even considered worthy of coming in here to be a part of this. He's out in the field tending the sheep. And so Samuel, as he's looking over every one of these, and he's, and he's praying, and he's not seeing that, uh, he's thinking, surely this one, surely that one, surely the other one, but the Lord's not saying yes. And here's the scripture, that what the Lord says to Samuel. Don't consider their appearance or their height. I've rejected them. As a king, he's talking. The Lord does not look at the things as people look at. And he says to Samuel, people look at the outward appearance. And he said, God looks at the heart. And hasn't that proven to be true all through the years? I mean, I don't know that we've ever been a society as count, as uh, focused on the outward appearance as we are today. Everything they project to us with the media, arts, entertainment, everything Everything on the outside is presented as just this beautiful, perfect thing, and there's less and less emphasis put on the inside when the scripture we just read said, God, that's where God's looking. He's looking at the heart. And sadly, that even finds its way into religion, where religious people will focus on the outside and sometimes not pay attention to the real message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which was all about the inner man. It's all about how we love, how we treat others, how we love and serve God, how we love and serve others. And unfortunately, sometimes we get so focused on the outer man that we don't focus enough on the inner man. And sometimes we let our attitudes, motives, goals, plans, likes, desires, they don't always line up with the kingdom of God. See, in this verse I just read, Samuel was looking for the best and the brightest, and God was interested in the lowly shepherd boy left shunned out in the wilderness. God saw the softness of David's heart rather than the physical strength and stature of all the others. And as we look at this story of the woman at the well, it illustrates how the simple gospel message of Jesus confounds the wisdom of the wise, yet it gives grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to the meek and the lowly that are willing to receive all that it offers. Okay, so let's look at the scriptures that uh, get into this story. It's in uh, John, the fourth chapter, right at the beginning. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus. It was his disciples who were doing the baptizing. 
So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee, but it was necessary to go through Samaria. So based on the mounting, mounting jealousy of the Pharisees, Jesus makes the decision to get out of town. He, the growing number of baptized believers had baffled and angered the Jewish leaders. And realizing the necessity to bring his message to others, Jesus wasn't at this point going to get bogged down with needless conflict with these people because every time he went to Jerusalem, he wound up with nothing but conflict. So he decides to move on from the rebellious rulers of Judea and return to the welcoming working class village of Galilee. He's going out to the everyday average people, which is what he did his whole ministry. But the normal Jewish travel plan to get there, it required a whole circular route through Transjordan. And why did they do that? Because they did not want to go through Samaria. Why? Because they despised the Samaritans. That was their, as I mentioned, the prejudicial racial thing of their day. Jews and Samaritans wanted nothing to do with each other. But Jesus determined to bypass all the prejudice, and he's going to take a shortcut right through the territory that he's not supposed to go through. And I'd, you'd love to be a fly on the wall to see how his apostles took that, because that wasn't going to sit well with them. When he says we're going through Samaria, they're like, what? We don't go through Samaria. We have nothing to do with these people. Now, how did that all come about? The Jews and the Samaritans had a strong dislike for each other. It spans centuries. It, it goes way back to after Solomon was king, when his sons took over, because of fault on their part, the nation split. The nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. <clears throat> now, eventually, that northern kingdom in 722, 722 years before Christ, the Assyrians came in, and they defeated the normal. God had warned them over and over and over again that judgment would come if they didn't repent, and they didn't. And frankly, the southern kingdom, the same thing happened. The Babylonians came in. But when the Assyrians came in and uh, defeated the northern kingdom, they let the people stay in the land. But at the same time, other people are coming into the land. They're intermarrying with them. And that caused them among the people in Judah to be considered half-breeds. Okay, so now you're not a real Jew because you've married all these other people. So these group of people became known as Samaritans, and they were not liked at all by the Jews who did not see them as true Jews. Now, the Samaritans retained their Jewish belief in the one true God, but over time they formed their own pattern of worship. And they even went to the point of building their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So you had two temples, one in the north, one in the south. And that, that temple that they built in the north that was destroyed years later. So the Jews tolerated the Samaritans, but only as half-breeds. They engaged in a level of commerce with them, but fellowship was forbidden. Any Jew who made contact with a Samaritan was considered unclean. As a result, no true Jew would ever travel through Samaria and risk exposure to contamination enter Jesus, who purposely goes through, hated Samaria, and breaks down the walls that separate the two rivals because that's who our God is. God is not a God of division. Our God is a God of unity. He brings people together. He does not divide them.
False pride and prejudice find absolutely no place in the kingdom of God. Jesus consistently broke down society's barriers and he was constantly criticized for doing so. And it's really no different today. Man does not easily let go of power of prejudice. It binds some people together into cliquish groups who beliefs give them a sense of superiority over others. It's like we form teams. My team's the right team, your team's the wrong team. And for centuries, it has been a major tool of the power elite to covertly divide and conquer their people for their own sadistic agenda. And why does it continue? Because it serves to feed the people some false sense of pride. Jesus came to expose and expunge prejudice for the evil that it is. And for any Christian to ever engage in it is make a mockery of the ministry of Christ. Because his ministry commands reconciliation over prejudicial rejection. There's a scripture in Corinthians. It says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The The old is gone, the new is here. All this from God who reconciled us through Christ. And he gives to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world unto himself in Christ and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Hmm. Our calling to see all people reconciled to God and each other as members of one body of believers. And that's going to require a firm stance against any prejudicial tendencies and having the courage and the convictions to withstand the criticism and ostracism that will probably follow if you do it. It happened to Jesus. It can happen to his followers. So as Jesus is going to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, he has no tension of just passing through. He's going to make a controversial stop off at Shechem, which is the very center of the Samaritan belief system. I said they put up a phony temple. This is where they put it. What better place to make his stand against the prejudice of his days going right to the heart of it? And so the scripture says he came to the town of in Samaria called Sychar, Near the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So this is a very revered place. And Jesus, he was tired from his long journey. He sat down by the well and it was about noon. So it's high noon. Jesus is tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And he even tells his apostles, guys, look, go to town. He sends them on a McDonald's run. Just, you know, go out and get some food. So in the heat of the day, weary and thirsty, he sets himself down beside Jacob's well. And all of a sudden, unannounced and unexpected, comes an unknown woman of Samaria. She comes on the scene to draw her water that's needed for the day. Now, why is this woman coming to to the well all by herself at noontime in the heat of the day? It was a daily custom of Samaritan women to come and to get the water. That's what they did. And they usually did it in the early morning to avoid the heat of the day that would come later. But the fact that she comes at midday suggests that she didn't even want to be seen by the other woman. Her questioned character 
her licentious lifestyle left her totally ostracized by her peers. And so to spare herself shame and ridicule, she was living like a recluse. I won't let anybody see me. I'll come by myself. Never understanding, you've got a divine appointment this day. Jesus already knows you're coming. That's why he's going through Samaria. He's doing all of this to meet one woman at the well who's going to change the course of history for all of the Samaritan people. Folks, sometimes you think you might doing anything. You don't count. You don't have any great ministry. You look around and say, what about me, Lord? You can change the course of history by just one person you meet. And you let your light shine and you share with them just like Jesus is going to share with this woman at the well. That's how powerful the gospel is. Now, this is not the type of woman that Jesus should be seen with alone. It isn't. As a matter of fact, in the society back then, men weren't even supposed to have a conversation with a woman without her husband being there. That's why later he's going to tell her, go get your husband. It, was, it just wasn't done that way. So he's not supposed to be doing this, but Jesus did a lot of things like that in his life. Things the society said don't do. Yet history teaches us that Jesus regularly reached out to those that society shunned. It wasn't even the first time he did it with a woman. He had meetings with Mary Magdalene that raised some eyebrows. His encounter with the uh, woman caught in adultery, the same thing. He never shied away from any chance encounters of the strange kind. They proved to be profitable and productive in the furtherance of his gospel message. When nobody else in society wanted anything to do with these people, Jesus stepped up to the plate and said, I will. So this face-off at high noon was going to be the highlight of this woman's life and the turning point for the entire Samaritan nation. And it would serve as a death knell to the power of prejudice that the serpent provokes. And make no doubt about who's provoking racism and prejudice. It's the serpent's game. So again, we're going to see a contrast here. They're meeting at high noon. Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark of the night. The woman encounters him in the light of the day. Nicodemus sought Jesus out to analyze and interrogate. Jesus seeks the woman out to encourage and enlighten. While both come with their respective religious beliefs, Nicodemus is leaving uncertain and confused, and she's going to depart with courage and conviction. Nicodemus walked away in somber silence, and this woman's going to run back to town and tell everybody the good news, that a sinner can be set free. How true it is. He came to those which was his own, but his own did what? Received him not. Yet to all who did receive him, believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will. Not a natural birth, in other words, born of God. So here they are, the two of them, they're sitting there. Stone silence, sounds of silence. And aware that the woman would never be open to discussion with a strange Jewish man, because they weren't even allowed to speak, 
Jesus is the first one to break the ice. I suppose he uses a line that's been used a lot. Let's have a drink together. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you even ask me for a drink? Again, the Jews didn't associate with the Samaritans. So the woman responded by reciting the prejudicial reasons that prevent them from sharing a drink. And here's the other thing. Jesus didn't even have a cup handy. Now that's going to pose a problem because not only is he going to drink Samaritan water from a woman that's going to be considered unclean, he's got to drink it now from an unclean cup as well. And the woman couldn't even conceive of him being thirsty enough that he would humble himself to reach down to that level to take the drink from her and from her cup. And she's going to discover that Jesus came to seek, to save, and to serve the least that society had to offer. And I love that scripture that says he not only came to save, it says he came to seek and to save. The reason why you're redeemed today is because he sought you out. He made the first step. We see that right in the book of uh, book of uh, Genesis. Adam and Eve hiding out from God. Who made the first step to them? God came to them. Jesus sought this woman out. He sought you out. And the woman was readily acknowledging herself as unworthy. And aren't we all? <laughs> Jesus said one time, he said, look, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous or the self-righteous, I've come to call sinners. Sinners are those that are willing to humble themselves and seek for that which they know they don't deserve. We don't deserve it, we don't earn it. It's the grace and the love of God that draws us to Jesus now, I think I've mentioned this before in another podcast, but it's worth repeating here. That Jesus is choosing this woman to reach the Samaritan. The woman, of course, was the first one to be deceived by Satan in the garden. But the good news was the seed of the woman would then defeat the serpent and set man free from the penalty of the sin. Jesus, the promised seed, was now sitting and sharing the deliverance message with an unworthy woman at a well of salvation. And she's going to be used to set the Samaritans free. And I've mentioned before, the first person to preach the resurrection of Jesus, that was a woman, Mary Magdalene. She ran to the apostles with the announcement, Christ is risen. There were three types of people, basically, at that time with Jesus. They were Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Mary Magdalene took the gospel, first one, to bring it to the apostles, the Jew. Jesus, with this woman of the well, she will be the first one to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. And a Syrophoenician Greek woman that Jesus meets later on, her one request was that her daughter be set free from demonic possession Jesus does it for her, and she takes the gospel back to the Gentiles. Jew, Gentile, and Samaritan, the three distinct nationalities of their time, 
were all welcomed with the good news by three women that were considered society's unlikeliest of choices. If it was up to man, they would have never chose them. It was up to God. The first in deception was going to be the first in deliverance. Only God can do that. And it's only fitting that in the day of man's reckoning, Jesus relegates the first to be last, and he elevates the last to be first. Excuse me, I'm going to take a drink of water. No one ever restored the respect and dignity of woman that Jesus did. That any further, quote, woman's liberation movement would even be needed? That's probably a pretty sad commentary of man's rejection of the work of Christ. Jesus gave woman a voice equal in value in society's status structure. At that time, they were kind of treated as second-class citizens. And I don't, I think people misunderstand sometimes that it was never God's intent when he, when he renders judgment against Eve. It was never his idea to put woman in some second class status. Her subjecting to man was going to be a positive thing. The case could be made. Adam was always subject to her because Adam had all of creation. And what happened? He was crying out, no, I need someone like me. Adam was already submitted to Eve. When he saw Eve, he was, oh, my God, look what, look at, he was submitting his whole life to her. So when a woman is submitting back to the man, it's just mutual submission of husband and wife. They would prosper together, mutually being subject to each other. When it says, woman, be subject to your husband, it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ was, he came down and submitted himself to us. The enemy has no intention of it working that way. He wants to do everything he can to divide. Divide the husband, the wife, the wife destroy the family. And the freedom Jesus offered this Samaritan woman and all that would follow has been lost in what today is called the liberation movement. This modern day liberation movement is nothing about, nothing more, nothing less than in reinforcing the elitist interest and the elitist agenda. Do you, you know, when you look at uh, the 70s, a period going back to uh, the 1970s, 60s and 70s, all the seed of what we're seeing now, accelerating now, it all had its foundations back then, a post-war period, but especially the 60s and the 70s. The early 60s, what did they do? They stopped prayer in the schools, the Supreme Court. It is amazing to me in our lifetime that we have seen there's nine lawyers that can be appointed to a position and decide the fate of a country. The decisions they have made since the 60s today are astounding. They have changed the course of American history. These are nine unelected officials who can make decisions that make law and turn the course of the whole American culture. They started out in the early 60s and going to take prayer out of the school. In the mid-60s, it was the ruling on contraception. And what, it, what would logically follow with that? 
well, the early decision in the early 70s on abortion. And you, you look at all of this and you see this is a related plan to come against husband, wife, family, and Christianity. And we sat there and allowed this to happen. And they spun it all like they were doing it. Well, we're, we're doing this to liberate and, and set people free. We're doing this for the rights of people. Do women seriously believe the government rulers and the Supreme Court justices will move with compassion concerning women's reproductive rights when they pass overt ways? Do you think that was going? It was a political agenda. When you look at uh, the, the, the poor woman that they used in, I think her name was Norma McCorvey. She had been married twice. She had children by both of the husbands. And, you know, she was divorced from them. And the children were with uh, family members. She got pregnant a third time. The girl was confused. She had a history of drug abuse. She was just in a very fragile unstable place this woman Weddington's her name and I cannot remember her first name right now but she went to Texas law school and while she was in law school she became pregnant it was illegal to have an abortion in Texas so she went to Mexico to have the abortion but she was part of a, a radical group at the college that they were a counseling woman on getting abortions, how to get the abortions in uh, Mexico. And they were concerned, because it was against the law of Mexico to have an abortion, they were concerned that what they were doing might get them in trouble with the law. So they were looking for a test case to bring it to court. And along comes Norma McCorvey. But what they knew is, we want to get this to court. The, the goal was to get it ultimately up to the Supreme Court and that was going to take probably years. And so this woman comes to them looking for an abortion and they're telling her, no, you really need, you really need, in their mind, she needed to have the baby so they could strengthen their legal case. That way they could say, look what you did to this woman. She wanted to have an abortion. She couldn't have it. Years later, Norma McCorvey comes out and says, they used me. I was their sacrificial lamb. They used me to pursue their agenda. Their agenda, they did not have her at heart. Most of this, it's not about woman's liberation. It's about, more about woman's bondage. At the same time Roe versus Wade was passed, we had a sterilization program in India and a one-child policy in China. Why? Because population reduction is people. They knew they knew sterilization or a one-child policy wouldn't work in America. Abortion was the answer. By the way, where did they put the abortion clinics? All in the inner city and in the black neighborhoods. Do you know that in, I think it was 2013, there were more black children aborted in New York City than were born in New York City. But it was done there on purpose. And there are, thank the Lord, there are black people that stood up doing. This is a planned scheme. 
And you know, I'm, I'm saying all this, and this is no way meant to judge any young woman left alone in fear of an unwanted and sometimes an unlawful pregnancy. That uh, There are a lot of people that are going through difficult decisions today in this crazy world we're in, living in, and there's more understanding than it, that is needed than is generally allowed. If Jesus reached out to the woman at the well as one caught in adultery, he'd certainly do the same today with those who struggle with an abortion. So I'm not trying to judge people. I'm, talk, I'm trying to present this to show you that there's an agenda involved in here that has nothing to do with the people. And the craziness was, this is, it started in the 60s. I don't know that people understand. The 1960s, the middle class in America had grown as never before. Uh, in the early 60s, the president then was Kennedy. He did what he called uh, a supply-side tax cut. He cut the, the, the uh, rich people paid up to 90% over a certain amount of their income. They paid 90% uh, federal taxes. He reduced that to 70. It's since been reduced a heck of a lot more than that. Then he took the corporate tax, reduced that from, I think, 52% down to 35%. And then he took American people's taxes and he reduced that. And the nation, the economy turned around. The nation was prospering. We had the, the, the longest economic growth over a period of time that we've had in America. For almost nine years of GDP growing, uh, little or no inflation, and incredibly low unemployment. The middle class, the family unit, everything was prospering, and every attempt was made to destroy that. Because when the middle class gets strong like that, guess where the power goes? goes where it belongs, right to the people. And it was a plan designed to end all of that. I know I'm going off on a soapbox here, but this stuff is, I, I'm not, this isn't conspiracy theory. It's fact. I mean, you look at some of the things that happened in the 60s and 90s, the, we went off, the 60s and 70s, we, we went off the gold standard. I mean, the, the, the Nations were actually, there were nations in the world that were actually looking to get rid of their dollars. They were buying gold. The answer, get off the gold standard. So what's going to back the gold? Oil is. We're going to have an oil embargo. We're going to cut a deal with the Saudi Arabians. Now oil is going to, going to back the dollar because every nation in the world that buys oil, to buy it, you're going to convert your currency into America's currency. And the economy took a whole different turn. And the middle class, little by little by little, began to shrink. I said there was little or no unemployment in the 60s. Do you know, do you know, do you know, that was with one of the lowest workforces. Why is that? Because the entrepreneur, the small businessman, was prospering. The families were growing. There were you know, it was nothing for to have three or four children in a family, and the mothers were actually doing, doing what they, they were. They were the women are the heartbeat of the home. The woman was in the home. She she was doing exactly. And don't tell me that's not work. You do that job, it's work. But the men were prospering as as entrepreneurs. I don't mean they were getting rich. I'm talking about they were making. It was the largest growth for the middle class. They were making. I grew up in Rhode Island. My uncle, back then, I peddled milk with him. We had two trucks on the road. He was making a living for his family. We had local dairy farmers. My grandfather, others, they were making a living. Uh, we had Chickle Hill. We had 
groceries. There were no chain supermarkets. Then we had the local grocery store. We had local pharmacies. This wasn't CVS all over the country. These were local pharmacists making a living. We had even in uh, you shopped in downtown Providence, Shepherds. Shepherds was started by a local guy back Gosh, I think it was in the late 1800s. He got to be the largest department store, but he was still local. I'm trying to say is these were all people working for themselves, making a living. The families were growing. The houses were being built. The middle class was doing better than it ever done. And there are people that can't have that. And the one major thing they did in the early 70s, not only the Roe versus Wade, the women's liberation movement, they took the woman out of the house and put them in the workforce. We are going to do everything we can to make sure that working class, middle class, family unit, and religion, we want nothing to do with Christianity. We're going to destroy it all. And today we're seeing the acceleration of all that stuff. You got all these new world order leaders. They're all on record opposing. Uh, they're, they're all in support of population reduction. What do you think this part of this pandemic's all about? And by the way, all these uh, supposed vaccines, none of them get to the third world countries because those people are just expendable. I'm talking about the 70s. Back in 1979, I'm, I'm, I suppose I should wrap this up, but I want to talk about this for a minute because, again, what I'm trying to say is the seeds of what is going on that you and I are living with right now, they've already been sown in the past and it's accelerating now. In the late 1970s, this guy who calls himself R.C. Christian, wasn't his real name, he told everybody that's not his real name, he walks into Elder County, Georgia, and uh, I think he said his ancestors lived there, and pl plus they had uh, the most granite, because he's going to suggest a $500 million, I mean, he's going to su suggest that he's going to build a monumental granite stone Stonehenge, it's called a Georgia Guidestones, and he's going to put Ten Commandments on them. Leading people, he said, into an age of, quote, reason. And the subscriptions are going to be written in Babylon, Egyptian, Greek, and Sanskrit, which is a, a language that's used, I think, in the Hindu religion. Sixteen feet high, with four slabs at each way, 42,000 pounds. And what's it all about? Establishing a world government, population re reduction, reproduction control, eugenics, the relation of man to nature, and what they call spirituality. Let me, if you, you can look this stuff up, I mean, but if you have no interest in it, then turn me off. But let me just read you these, these uh, Ten Commandments that are on there. It's in Elberton, Georgia. He went to the guy that ran the granite company, and then he went to the Granite Street Bank to uh, get the thing put put through. Commandment number one is under 500 million people 
and perpetual balance with nature. And you can hear nature here over and over again because nature becomes more important than people. But I don't know, this is back in 1979, but I mean, you're going to limit the population that severely. Number two is to guide reproduction wisely, which is a crazy way of saying we're only going to have certain people produce and we're going to produce this master race. Other people are not going to be allowed to produce eugenics, which, by the way, many of these people in these international organizations, that's what they believe in. Number three is unite humanity with only one language, which is kind of interesting because the first Babylon that came along that God destroyed, when he destroyed them, it was because of language. He said, look, I've got to diversify these people because what they're doing, this demonic thing that they're doing, see what they did in the original Babylon is the same thing you're seeing today among the world elitist. They were trying to create a one world government, one world religion, one world economy, one centralized system. They had their own juggernaut temple there that was going up to the sky with all kinds of demonic activity in it. And God said, they're all speaking one language. If I let them go, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. So what does he do? He disperses them and gives them different languages. So it's only natural. He did that to protect them. So it's only natural that now we're going to unite with one language. And number four, it says, rule passion, rule faith, and rule tradition with tempered reason. Okay, so now my faith or any passion I have or any tradition, this all going to be governed by somebody else's version of what's reasonable. We're going to govern that all with reason. Number five is protect the people. Note the word protect people. You, you gotta, you got to love that because everything they do is to protect us. Protect the people and nations with fear laws. I don't know who's determining those fear laws. Number six is all external disputes of nations they will be all be resolved with one central world court. That sound. And folks, that's exactly what's going on here with the World Trade Organ, World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, G7, G20, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, Council of Inclusive Capitalism, all these ridiculous organizations that are all funded by the same people. Number seven is avoid petty, petty laws and useless officials. I don't, I don't know who's going to be considered a useless official or what's considered a petty law. Number eight, I love balance personal rights with social duties. In other words, your rights will be determined by what they consider duty. So personal rights was always meant to go out the window and Man, we have seen that in the last 20 years. I don't think anything took away personal rights, anything more than the uh, after 9-1-1. In this pandemic, they're little by little taking away more and more personal rights. So those things are going going out because they have to be balanced with social duties after all.
Number nine is prize, truth, beauty, and love, seeking harmony with the infinite. What the freak kind of new age nonsense is that? Prize truth, beauty, and love, and seek harmony with the infinite. With the infinite. Hmm. And number 10, don't be a cancer on earth. And this is repeated twice. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. In other words, nature is more important than we are. Okay. That's the that's the Ten Commandments of the elite. That that's and again, that's back over forty years ago, and that's exactly what we're seeing escalating, accelerating today. Welcome to the power elite's lopsided illusion of liberation. Only Jesus can offer the true liberation both men and women long for. The Samaritan woman would discover the true freedom that Christ affords. It's not a liberation based on some government legislation or some elitist plan. It's the love, joy, and peace of God shed abroad in our hearts. Liberation of soul, liberation of spirit that brings freedom instead of fear, shame, insecurity, inadequacy, and inequality. When the world weighs us down with its tired and twisted tale of liberation, we need to take heed to the counsel of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble and hot. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for listening.